Promise No Promises The Tail and the Tongue Episode 4 The Loving Life of Friendship The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter The Tail and the Tongue This series of new episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies swelling in them. Always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. The Loving Life of Friendship is the fourth episode that follows a conversation with poet and researcher Sara Torres, author of several poetry books, including La Otra Genealogia. She also writes for various media and is currently working on her PhD, The Lesbian Text, Fetish, Fantasy and Queer Becomings, at Queen Mary University of London. Dear Sara, I'm writing this letter to you because for me, the epistolary genre is deeply related to friendship and love. A friend of mine once told me some time ago that together we would be like 19th century lovers, writing long and intense emails to each other. At first, our correspondence was shaped by a geographical distance and later became influenced by another distance, one produced by the difficulty of seeing each other frequently while living in the same city. Now we write short messages to each other. The practice of epistolary love requires a time that we both no longer have. But our concise words and our relative silence are equally loving. I suppose I find it difficult to speak of love in the third person, following Marguerite Duras' critique of her friend Roland Barthes after his unloving discourse on love. In one of your texts, Friendship as a Way of Life, a culture of the lover's friends, you begin by mentioning Michel Foucault and his conception of friendship as the center of queer becoming and relationships. What kind of relationships can exist outside the framework of the heterosexual norm? This is a question that you also ask yourself too, and that you surely also answer from out of a certain practice, and not only from a theoretical point of view. The norms of love make us laugh from within the norms. And I feel that love from within the norms can dangerously lead to love of the norms. I got to know your concept of the ethics of the lover's friends thanks to an online reading in which I heard you speak for the first time. It was month ago, in the first winter of the pandemic, when the feeling of having lost so many indispensable worlds was very strong. To meet you and the lover's friends was really hopeful by then. 
With this concept, you refer to a third space of relationship based on the encounter and practice of love. Could we say that this is a formless form of love? I misunderstood it then, mentioning to you my inability, perhaps frustration, to be more physically intimate with my friends. As you told me yourself, the lover's friend's ethic is not about having sex with friends, but about understanding that our lovers are our friends and vice versa, and that this ethic is a culture of resistance. It is a third space in a binary world. But betting on this ethic, as you always point out, also has painful consequences. The fact that relationships cannot be readable produces suffering and discomfort. As you say, if it is not monogamous and unconditional, it is not real love. If there is no renunciation and sacrifice, it is not real love. The realities of love should be more realistic and friendly. I find it very important and inspiring how you include ethics and love. I think that ethics is not compatible with roles and with unconditional narratives of love because it puts special attention on behaviors and practices. You also include an element that is as powerful as it is slippery in the practice of love, desire. Desire points to a relationship to forms of contact. It is also a name for what does not yet have a name, Likewise, it is something capable of flowing into writing, your writing, making the lesbian text emerge. Desire, like the poetic gesture you mentioned in our conversation, is related to the mysterious. And here I remember another interview you gave, where you questioned the concept of the writer through which you were defined at the beginning. You ask, when do you become a writer? How much do you have to write to be a writer? The writer, like the artist or the curator, has ended up becoming a role, a form of absent content. Sometimes it surprises me that we are so critical of so many identity roles, but so uncritical of professional roles. But I don't want to take up more space by talking to you here, and I bid you a friendly farewell until the next time we meet. Thank you very much for all the words and time you shared with me. This is very, very important. Why is friendship considered a lesser form of affection in the life of what we call adults? I think that is because the life of the adult is culturally organized through the heterosexual fantasy of normal life. This normal life, this phantom. A life which is built around two main centers, we could say work and the family. And even if it's not uncommon to appreciate friendship as one of the elements that feature a healthy adult life, we tend to unconsciously accept the hierarchy that says that a partner, a mother, a father or a child are more important than a friend in what we call priorities. 
To prioritize some bonds over the others implies that we put our energy and our capital in protecting some lives over others. This is how we structurally work as a society. We see it very clear when we look at advertisement. They ask you to buy life insurances to protect your officially registered partner, your son or your daughter, from the uncertainty of life. Even campaigns directed to implement the use of face masks during COVID included the idea of the family. Protect your parents, protect your grandparents, and then only after the top bonds are safe, you go and apply ethics to behave well with other people around you. If we look at Butler's concept of precarity, we could speculate that in this cultural system, those without normative family bonds are more precarious than others who have created a normal lifestyle for themselves. Of course, in material terms, the reality is also that non-normative ways of socializing, like queer communities based on friendship, are also powerful structures for affect, pleasure and survival. But our imagination is constantly being mediated by this that Halberstam calls a straight time, which is an understanding of life through heterosexual parameters. And especially it's not the other, the one that needs to allow you to be her friend. If a partner is breaking up with you and still there are so many things that are healthy in that bond, of course we are still friends. But if there was a big pain or it was a big misunderstanding that made you look at the other as someone that you could not trust, then how will I be your friend if I cannot trust you, if you didn't take care of me in this manner? No? So, of course, friendship is a serious matter. If you meet the standards that I have for friendship, then we are friends. We've always been friends, apart from our romantic exchange, our passion or the sex we had. But if you didn't meet my friendship standards, then of course we cannot be friends. We could say that we are culturally trained to search for finished total entities instead of recognizing the actions and the processes, the practices that involve relationality. For instance, often we need to believe in what is called real love, understood, as you said, as unconditional. In order to believe in love as a way of relating to the world and the others, if I don't believe in real love as unconditional, then I don't believe in love at all. <laughs> love, it doesn't exist. Here we have the big myth of unconditional love. Mothers, represented by the Virgin Mary, La Virgen Maria, the total mother lover. We see that her body is just love and availability for the child. This is real love, exclusivity, in the case of the Virgin Mary. She's virgin, so she's a real mother, because her love is really unconditional, it's not contaminated by others. The other cultural figure now that we have in crisis and that is used to represent 
unconditional love is the definitive lover, the soulmate or the lifelong partner. The unconditional love of another gives us sense that our being in the world is important. And we crave for this sense. We crave for reconocimiento, for the acknowledgement that we are important, that we deserve to be the only one for another. When people fail to provide these standards of reconocimiento, of acknowledgement, we transport the fantasy of unconditional love to dogs. Donna Haraway will say, okay, so I didn't find true love in people because people are not good enough, but there are other beings in the world that can confirm that unconditional love exists. Then I project the fantasy of unconditional love to dogs. Well, I'm just analyzing how we need unconditional love culturally. I'm not saying all of this as someone who has overcome in any manner the fantasy of unconditional love, but I have analyzed how it structures my life, my decisions and my feelings. What I'm saying is that I am part of these fantasies. I am vulnerable because of them, through them. I need to understand them in order to understand the demands that I project on the other. So what we can do is to try to understand how does it work, this fantasy of unconditional love that we are projecting, that we are demanding? And when you were talking about roles and practices of relationality, I think when we bond through the practice of love is an open process that is open to transformation and adaptation. But when we bond through roles and not through the practice of love, our possibilities of action are more fixated in predefined parameters. This also gives us a sense of misery and failure when things change and transform in manners that we have not predicted. So we have everything very tidy in roles and everything is safer. We feel that it's safer because we understand what is going on. The text is readable. The other is readable. But when we don't have roles, we need to be really attentive to what is going on. And we really need to be investing the body in creating the way of relating that is happening in this present time. So practices of love imply presence and attention. And I think this is very important because it's the only way of creating love and not obeying the rules of love. I think inevitably part of the pleasure of being in love involves situations in which you have other participants as viewers. You know the situation in which you feel jealous because these two are really in love and you don't feel the same, no? Or then you evaluate your own relationships, you even evaluate your own feelings because people in love tend to project these rituals of showing love to others. And it appears a kind of utopian horizon of affectivity towards everyone is trying to go. So when you love someone, you try to perform that you are the embodiment of the lover. During a short period of time, which is very sad because that's just like culturally 
fix at the beginning of the relationship very often. It will be nice to have that forever, kind of. If we think of friendship and love all together, I do believe that you can say I'm gonna love you forever because I cannot stop loving you because you are part of my life, you are part of what I understand as important in life. So you can think that even if that person does not love you romantically in the future, you're gonna still love that person forever because there are many ingredients and many factors that create that love that you feel. And also this acknowledgement that the other is part of you, that you cannot exist without the other because you have constructed yourself as you are through habits that are shared with others and important others, important friends. In healthy friendship, because as you said, you can have romantic and healthy friendship. I think what is important is that in friendship we recognize the other as other, not as something that is part of our belongings or part of our identity. And that's why we are nicer to friends when they do things that they don't represent us. Whereas with partners, it's very easy to start looking at the other as part of the self and then whatever you do that goes against my will affects me negatively, even if you love me. In Spanish we have this expression, poner los cuernos, in which because someone has an affair with another person outside of the partnership, the person that suffers socially is the lover, no? So you have these cuernos, which is a cultural sign that your partner has been with another person. Well, your partner is another that has kind of exercised her freedom to act outside of your will, and that's a possibility, and that shouldn't have any cultural sign against you. You shouldn't suffer social consequences for the freedom of the other. But this language affects us all the time. That's why very often, if someone does something outside our relationship, we tend to feel that the other is betraying me, no? But maybe the other wasn't betraying me, the other was just doing something for herself. With the horns, you're wearing the social mark that says that someone is disobedient to the norm. You are wearing it so it's very visible and people can learn that this is something that they shouldn't do. I like this notion of polyamorous euphoria. I am not sure what it means, but I think I have felt it. <laughs> Loving intensely and being reciprocated does give a feeling of euphoria. And here the friendship thing arrives, that if you are a bit sensitive to the pain of others, to the pain of friends, your own euphoria, polyamorous euphoria, can rapidly turn into anxiety and distress when the friends you're loving are not feeling safe, happy and secure with your polyamorous bliss. 
I personally used to think that I needed to be loved very intensely and expressively more than I needed to be the only one for another. What I want to say is that there is a possibility of feeling safe in a polyamorous relationship when you feel that following your own standards, you are being loved, desired and cared for. Well, this makes us go back to the question of time and how to take care of friends. Who has enough time to give herself to different people in the intensity and through the fantasy that our cultural ideas of real love demand? Our cultural distribution of time makes that we have only some key free moments left to invest, said in economic terms, in keeping our affective sexual bonds alive. We work most of the time, and often the only moment that we have to feel the presence of a body, of a friend, is during a sleep. Then, would you like to share your life with a person to whom you cannot freely call at night to spend the night together because she might be with another person? Because we have been created as subjects through monogamy as ideology, it's not rare that our affective symbolic system collapses in situations like the one that I have described. I think that in general terms, the Western ego is not yet ready for non-conflictive long-term polyamory. Still, I believe that if we allow ourselves to do it, we can absolutely feel love and desire for more than one person. I really admire the brave lovers who privilege love over cultural norms and endure in their loving bonds without falling into the heterosexual monogamous ideology that says that there is only one true love, or more accurately these days, in the general practice of serial monogamy, that there is only one soulmate after the other. That's a beautiful utopia. The thing is that when you fall in love, you fall in love through cultural norms, generally. And it's something that you cannot avoid, that partially your love will be inscribed in cultural norms. So it's normal as well and it's natural to be monogamous because it's culturally normal and natural to be monogamous, to feel monogamous. And depending also of your past experiences, your attachments work in a way or another. So maybe you are truly demanding because you have a real need for constant comfort and presence. And when you are not feeling that the other is just there for you, that will really destroy all your security and your capacity to love. Because when we feel anxious about the state of our relationship, we cannot love and we cannot engage in the present neither. So it's quite tricky. I mean, there are many aspects of it that we need to look at. And it's very important to be open and fair with what we are capable of doing and what we are not capable of doing. Polyamory shouldn't be a trend or something that is implemented because today is cool or is better or it represents better our time. I think we all need to be open to change through time and to experience different things, but we need to read ourselves. We need to take the time to analyze how we feel and what makes us grow and connect 
and what makes us feel so anxious that we are absolutely frozen and incapable of growing and expanding. What really gives anxiety is the collapse of the certainties and the languages that we used in order to translate the world. So if someone arrives and proposes a new order of things, a new language that is not familiar for you at all, it's completely normal that you collapse, that your affects and your certainties, your sense of the self, your sense of what you need, what you're doing, really, really enter into the realm of trauma. And I think we need to care for these moments of susto, of scare, of uncertainty, because they are important. And they are important because they allow us for transformations, but also they are important because we don't have to abandon our friends in the moments of collapse, just because we feel that they are collapsing because they are normative or because they are too heterosexual or too monogamous. Yeah, we are all collapsing, but we need to be attentive with the moment of collapse because it's a moment of radical vulnerability that can lead us to beautiful things, but also can lead us to be paralyzed and to horror, ultimately. La ética de las amantes amigas or the ethics of lover friends. When we think of ethics and love, we think of love and we think of love as practice, as the practice of love, as we were saying. No? Love is not a fixed entity, but something you do when you're loving someone, something, the world, animals, humans, whatever. It's about action and this is super important. And you are right, in common usage, the word lover is mobilized to refer to a person with whom you are having an erotic physical bond, which is not necessarily mediated by ideas of productive and reproductive future. And I think this is the nice part of it, that the lover has implied the freedom to connect in the present with a body without using the other, without using that body, to fulfill your fantasies of normative futures. You are in the present time with that body, but you are not planning to buy a house, to have children, and that body is not the medium to reach that goal. The sad part of it is exactly what you say, that the common usage of lover, at least in Spanish, we see that love and the works of love disappear. So in Spanish, el amante, is someone with whom you don't have the works of love. There is a hierarchy in which the lover is less than the partner because the lover relates to the body, desire and sex, whereas the partner relates to social structures, reproduction and the future. In our dual thinking, what relates to the body is always less. So el amante that relates to the body is necessarily less. In my concept of the lover friend, I want to combine erotic presence and intensity with emotional and material commitment. 
For me, the lovers are those who are loving each other and choosing each other's company in present tense. The care of the body-mind through erotic connection is the primary responsibility of the lovers. They do not exist as a medium to create and protect what Lee Edelman would call the child with capital C. So the lovers are not the ones who combine for a project that exceeds these two bodies implied. The bodies are responsible of being attentive to each other. And the friends are responsible to be attentive of each other. And we have a demand, of course, towards our friend, which is the demand of being loved. But that's the only one. The work on friendship by Foucault is fundamental for my way of, of thinking about these things, especially because Foucault wanted to find new ways of talking about love that were based in the experience of those who loved each other outside the norm and found ways of becoming together, of fighting together, struggling together, surviving together outside general discourses on love, on the future, on the family, etc. And he had as an example, of course, the AIDS crisis and how people were together, minorities were together, taking care of each other's bodies outside of the structure of the normative family because very often the normative family were not there for them because they were kind of the monsters of the system. So it's about monsters desiring and loving each other as friends because in the normative use of language they were not wife and husband etc. That's why equality sometimes for queer people implies losing subcultures of love that are subcultures of friendship and which are super important as a way of departure to new ways of relating and loving. I think we are not yet completely conscious of how we have suffered the consequences of isolation during COVID. And it's normal that after a traumatic social event like that, certain stories appear as the common stories for COVID. No? And we speak about common feelings and emotions, and we tell experiences that are very similar. But I think we need to be brave to tell other stories about the pandemic and about isolation. And I think it's very important, especially the people who were out of everyone's bubble or people who were single and living by themselves during this period. I think it's important that they speak out and they tell all the details of the times in which they were needing someone and that person even didn't respond to the call. Oh, I think we all try not to see the needs of others as well because we knew that responding to their needs or their demands was too risky. And when it's risky to respond to the need of the other, 
then things are not so easy and we are not that cool and our friendship is not that strong. So I think the ones who were isolated, the ones who were the others or the ones outside of the bubble are the ones that need to write the stories that I want to read now. For the people who were accompanied, there is a very shy way of saying that, you know, we had certain conflicts and if we are still together, we can say that everything was overcome. It was just at the beginning, it was a bit difficult, but you know, it's normal. And then if you experience a breakup, with your friends, cohabitants, partners, whatever, then you will reduce sometimes the story to the fact that it was terrible, it was impossible. But I think we need more details in the stories. We need to know what makes us sad and what makes us happy in a situation like this. And I think we need to know the details as well of how we feel abandoned and why we feel abandoned and how some conversations that were going on through WhatsApp and email constantly didn't really work to feel that we were accompanied, didn't really work to feel that we had friends. It was overwhelming sometimes. Sometimes it felt that it was just people that didn't know what to do that was different to their routine. So then they had to express themselves constantly with everyone. But the conversations maybe were not deep enough or they didn't touch the key points that we needed to hear or talk about. No? So I think it's about deepening the complexity of feelings and emotions and how feelings and emotions have related to the norm and the norm that different nations were Putin. In the case of Spain, a norm that was completely mediated through the idea of the family, through the idea of the partner, through the idea of the parents and the child. And we need to criticize that people were separated following the ideology of a Spanish family. I think that's super important. I was thinking when you were saying this that the discourses on love and affection that we had available in Spain over the COVID were really propaganda very often. They were radically monogamous, like without any doubt. They didn't even tremble in the affirmations that they made. They were implying that everyone was monogamous, for instance, and then they could put laws and open and close norms or possibilities of freedom depending on monogamy and depending on heterosexuality. And they were based on the emotional needs of normal people, people who were obedient to the norm affectively. And the reality of love and desire is that it's always more complex than the norm. So we still need to analyze the discourses, the official discourses on love and friendship that were available for us because they were really ideology. And that's very problematic in a moment of danger and crisis.
differing from the reality of girlfriends and boyfriends and wife and husband, an ethic of lovers, friends, implies that your relationships are not socially readable and therefore are more precarious. I mean, they are not socially readable in many, many, many scenarios. Because yes, you can have your group in which your life is super normal and readable, but then you go out to the streets and you confront the norm. I like that the term amigas, amantes, lover, friends appears without gender in English. Why not? Gender is not a desirable element in any queer affective utopias. In Spanish, when the absence of neutral makes me choose, I always choose feminine as the new universal. A universal that looks at diversity, differences, and corporeal situated knowledges. A universal that affects minorities and positions that are not in power. The pain of not being readable. Even if resistance has a pleasure related to it, I think there is a strong pleasure related to the fact of participating in society and being part of rituals and being part of moments that pre-exist us, that exist before us. Happiness sometimes is related to the feeling that everything is as it used to be, as it, I don't know, as you knew it when you were a child. So I think the lesbian text is the one which disavows the heterosexual dualist fantasy of the two sexes as natural companions. Even if the lesbian subject who writes has also been educated through it, through this fantasy. Because we are all educated in heterosexuality. Being in the world implies to know its logics. In the lesbian text, the subject who has been socialized as woman or positions herself as woman in the fantasy of gender disobeys compulsory heterosexuality in order to desire an improper object, in order to desire also alternative worlds. The lesbian writer does not need a partner, but desire. Desire in this sense of open and polymorphous, disobedient, open to new organizations. The idea that the lesbian needs love more than sex, that you were mobilizing, that's really, really funny. I think it derives from the same cultural formulation that we apply to women in general. Women want love, men want sex. I do not know much about women and men. As a lesbian, I want it all. I want love and I want sex as a way of loving and feeling happy in corporeal terms. I need sex and I need love. And I prefer both of them together, but not together with the end of having a child or buying a house, just together because we like it more. It's very funny, this thing of lesbians want love, no? And I think it's true, I mean, it is true, we cannot say that 
the lesbian culture of love is not related to this way of loving that is very intense and it's feminine, no? Like, lesbian cultures of love and sex put love really at the beginning of everything. But I think it's just because we have been educated as women as well. So even in lesbian masculinities, we don't reproduce exactly the masculine way of living and loving because we have been socialized as women and that really affects. And then when it's not someone who has been socialized from the beginning as woman but positions herself in this position of gender in desire that occupies the place woman is the same you know, when I'm talking about the lesbian I'm never talking about a cis lesbian or something like this I think it's about positions in desire and then you were asking about poetry as this form of revolution and it made me think of many points that I didn't really think about before because for me poetry is when something mysterious happens in the relationship between form and content some kind of generative instability that allows for new alternative beginnings a poetic gesture let's see suspends normative time and opens our attention to the experience of different dimensions of reality, many of which we cannot even organize in logical discourse. I don't want to think that genres have gender, but now that you make me think about it, I will definitely say that my idea of the poetic is definitely not a space for normative masculinity, because normative masculinity invests in a type of power that fears passivity and openness. And a poetic gesture is one that is open to be affected by the world, is related to porosity and not to rigidity. Maybe that is why there is always a degree of dissidence in poetic writing. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project at the Art Institute, FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch. That's dertank.ch. Or request information or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. 
Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Ziesel. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research team, Alice Wilke and Marion Ritzmann. Press and communication, Anna Franke and Sarina Scheidegger. Technical support, Esther Hunziger, Stephen Schoch, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HDK FHNW 2021.